So <laughs> six o'clock in the morning, I am sprinting out of this hotel, downtown LA, running through the streets, looking for an open convenience store. And I finally find one. I bust in. I'm sweating. I'm nervous. Guy can tell like there's a look of desperation in my face. And I say, please tell me you have bananas. And the cashier <laughs> says, uh, yeah, yeah, we do. I said, all right, I'll take two bananas. Please tell me you have a bathroom. And again, <laughs> the guy looked at me and he's like, uh, yeah, right back there. Pointed to the back of the store. I take my bananas. I go into the bathroom. And this was it. I mean, this was the moment of truth. Like, could I snap this banana? Essentially, my professional reputation was on the line, and it all came down to whether or not I could break this piece of fruit in half. So what do you get when you take a Fordham professor with a background in speech and theater, add a group of graduate business students, mix in some spoken word and a little storytelling, and a live audience? Well, my studio guests are here to tell us all about the storytelling project. Welcome to Fordham Conversations, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Okay, so why don't we go around, and um, I'm going to change this up a little bit. Can you all go around and introduce yourself? But I'd also like you to tell me one thing about yourself that, it's not on any of your social media sites. Wow, that's a hard so question. So you can't say, I am a professor, I am a, you know. This is actually my exact story. Okay. It's... Well, first introduce yourself. Okay. <laughs> first that's true. It really I guess is I'll linked go first. to what, you, yeah, what you're yeah, talking about. Uh, I'm Chris Watts uh, from Pennsylvania, live in Hoboken, New Jersey, work in the city right in the Empire State Building. Can I ask what you do in the Empire State Building? Absolutely. I, I work in sales for LinkedIn. But is that on your LinkedIn site? <laughs> it's on my LinkedIn profile, of course. Well, I need, something, I need something that's not oh, yeah, on you your need profile. Oh, yeah, on my LinkedIn profile. I want uh, some deep, dark secrets here. What makes you uniquely different, Chris? Good wow, one. Good one, question. Travis. This Good is one. taking too... I think it's taking so long because he's having trouble censoring himself. Just yeah. say, the, exactly. say the first yeah, thing. Yeah, say the first exactly. thing to come out. Uh, I'll go with this. I played rugby uh, undergrad, actually, at St. Joe's down in Pennsylvania. Uh, not that crazy, but in America, I'd say you're part of an elite club. I say elite, but you're part of a club, we'll say. Minority. Uh, yeah, a minority. First American I've met, best rugby. Oh, yeah? yeah. All right. Because it Maybe hurts. It <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It hurts um, a lot. So, yeah, that's one unique thing about me. Okay, who's next? I'll go. Uh, I'm Travis Russ, uh, professor at Fordham. Um, and I'm Professor of? of communication, and uh, I teach the Storytelling Project. I teach in the MBA program and on the undergraduate business school. And I actually was, this is my unique fact about me, I was in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. As? As a clown. Were you? I was. Hi, my name is Jonathan. I'm actually not on any social media. I've kind of uh, enjoy my privacy a little bit, but then to share something that wouldn't be on there if I was. Well, how about your last name? My last name. Well, that's funny. It's funny that I I didn't say that because my last name is what everyone in my life refers to me as from even my parents who share that last name as well as my wife. So you can call me Shanker if you so choose. Shanker. That's what everyone else does. And last but not least. Alfie. Alfie Ward. Okay. Um, Social media-wise, I'm, I'm on Facebook, but I don't exactly put too much stuff on. Uh, I used to work on a cruise ship, I was just telling these guys. As a what? As a, a fitness instructor, and I ran the gym. All right. 
So we all got some personal information from you. I also want Travis to describe, we're all going to get a chance to hear the stories that you presented during the storytelling project. But Travis, can you describe what the storytelling project is and why it exists? Sure. It's a full semester long course. And right now we're offering it on the graduate level in the business school. What, what the course is designed to do, it's really designed to help students build the confidence and the skill sets to tell personal stories in front of a live audience with no notes and complete candor. And throughout the semester, the students are thrown various challenges. Uh, I give them many prompts. For example, at the beginning of the semester, one prompt is tell a story from beginning to end about where you were and where you're going. And then one of the prompts towards the end of the semester is tell a story that you would never, ever dare tell in public. So it's really to up the ante throughout the semester to really challenge and stretch the students in terms of their skill sets. And I hope that the course builds their skills in two different areas. First, in terms of tangible skills. Do they look and feel more confident when speaking in front of an audience? Do they know how to structure a story from beginning to end with a very clear narrative arc? And then we also try to teach some of these intangible skills, such as are they more authentic when speaking in front of an audience? Can they make that connection with an audience? Do they, do they come across as being more vulnerable in front of an audience? And so it's really just to teach them how to connect and tell a story in front of other human beings. Now, Travis, I can see this for like a communication class or even an acting or theater class. How do you associate it with business? You know, I, I actually hesitated in introducing this course into the curriculum because I thought there would be strong resistance to the course. The very first day that it opened, it maxed enrollment. There is a hunger in the business world for this type of topic. Uh, I think it's probably been about the past five to ten years that there's been this drive towards figuring out how do we tell stories, especially in organizational settings. For advertisers, it's nothing new. You watch an episode of Mad Men and you see Don Draper spinning a good yarn to sell whatever product he's trying to sell. Uh, I think organizational leaders are, 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 are beginning to understand that in order to move people inside and outside the organization, they need to learn how to tell stories and they need to teach their employees how to tell stories, whether that's to move a product or implement a change or implement a particular vision that they have in mind. So I'd like to throw this out to you guys. How did it help? Because it's over, right? It's, it's, it's over. It's, they it's all complete. successfully passed, and so there's no pressure. <laughs> Even though I'm sitting here, I, I really am interested in their, their candid uh, feedback about the course. Yeah, so, so tell us, how did it help you? Chris? I, uh, yeah, from a business perspective, uh, I'd say most of business uh, comes down to moving people, really. And whether that's like you're trying to sell a product, you're trying to uh, motivate employees or get investors, whatever it is, it comes down to moving somebody to take action on something. And I think this class and, and just storytelling in general helps bridge the gap, I guess, between you and whoever it is on the other side of the table that you're trying to connect with. And Robin, just to fill you and the listeners in, throughout the semester, they would have to tell stories in front of the, their peers. And then at the, after every single performance, the students would, would vote for their favorites. And those students were entered in a pool. And at the end of the semester, we took this pool of students, and then I sent it back to the, to the class, and I asked them to vote for the top 
eight, I think, and the top eight or nine actually performed on stage at a comedy club, and we invited the public to come in and hear these stories uh, in real time on stage. So did all of you get to perform? These were Oh, and the audience yeah. then voted for their favorites, and the, the stories that you're going to hear today are the top three stories the audience voted on at that comedy club. All right. Well, now it's time to hear some storytelling. Who wants to go first? Alfie? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, Sunday Crime Stopping, I guess, was, was the name. I couldn't think of anything too creative. Okay. When you're running after a car thief at five in the morning, wearing an old pair of Toms and very loose shorts, you know this is going to be a day you're going to remember. Just before 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning last year as I was staying with my parents, my dad wakes me up holding a bat. Now, I know this has got to be serious, not only because he's holding the bat, of course, but also because of the time. I am one of the worst morning people you'll ever meet. In fact, I'm almost entirely useless before 9am, and my dad knows this. So the fact that he's waking me up makes me realise something is very wrong. He wakes me up, he shakes my shoulders, he says, Alfie, I think someone is trying to break into the house. I just heard them banging on the front door, and I think I just saw them climb over into the backyard. Now, despite how terrible I am in the mornings, I was pretty awake after hearing this. So I get up, and the two of us head downstairs. And once we get there, my dad bravely sends me outside on my own to go and find this guy because he needs to search the house, apparently. I go out there and it's pretty dark, but I have a torch. I'm looking around and I'm fairly certain there's no one there. So my adrenaline goes way down and I'm, I'm calm again. I'm ready to go back to bed until my dad shouts for me. He says, come to the front road now. I run round. And the moment I get there, I see that our f- opposite neighbor's front gate, their driveway gate, has been smashed to pieces. It's all over the front road. Their SUV is missing. And their front door is wide open. And this has suddenly gone from being a mild inconvenience that woke me up way too early to being a serious problem. So the two of us ran across the road, we went straight up to their front door and we shouted out to them. There was a nice elderly couple who lived there and we heard nothing back. We were pretty worried. We shouted again and still nothing. So my dad starts to phone the police. Luckily, as he does so, they come downstairs. They had no idea what had gone on. They had slept in, they were deep sleepers. But they were fine, which was a huge relief. Now, of course, they were pretty annoyed about the fact that their SUV was missing and the fact that it had smashed through their front gate and it was all over the road. But they were very happy about the fact that their brand new Mercedes sports car was sitting there untouched. As we spoke to them, we made sure they were okay. We checked on them, tried to find out what happened. Someone notices that the lights of the Mercedes sports car are flashing. And all of us turn around and we see a man standing in front of the car, fiddling with the car keys, trying to get in. This is the car thief. This is the man who tried to break into our house. And despite getting away clean with their SUV, he had come back to try and steal this Mercedes. As he fiddled with the car keys, he and I locked eyes and he ran. And I immediately ran after him. I can't say why I ran after him. I think maybe because I'm the middle child of five and I really need to impress people. (laughs) Or because I've just seen way too many action films. I'm inclined to think the latter. But either way, I was running and this was really exciting to me. But that excitement didn't last too long, as this criminal wasn't in the best of shape. (laughs) Despite being a skinny guy about 100 metres down the road or so, I had caught up with him. I didn't need to tackle him, I didn't need to restrain him or anything, because he was so tired, he was almost on the floor. He was leaning over, his hands were on his legs, trying to keep upright. He was panting away, and he was looking at me and he goes, Get lost, mate. Get lost or I'm going to knock you out. He said this in between a couple of other things as he was trying to catch his breath. I mean, at this point, he could barely stand up. He was so tired. 
And then he threw probably the slowest and most uncoordinated punch I've ever seen in my life. And it became clear that he was pretty drunk. So this was nothing to worry about. There was no epic fight or anything. But because he was so tired, I really didn't know what to do. In the movies and things, they have to tackle people. They have to restrain them or at least run for a little bit longer. But this guy was restraining himself. I mean, he could barely stand up. He was so tired. So I knew the police were coming. I knew he wasn't going anywhere. He couldn't run anywhere. And I really didn't know how a citizen's arrest actually worked. So instead of restraining him, I ended up just walking down the street with him, which must have been quite a strange image, like a small country road, me and this guy. And occasionally he would try to attack me, throw another couple of punches, but say it's nothing to worry about. And he would threaten me about how badly he was going to beat me up. And he would even try to run, but he would get maybe about two to five seconds in before he was too tired and would give up. So we walked along a few more minutes and he ran again. But this time he really went for it. He really started sprinting. I didn't know what was going on. And then I realized that the SUV he had stolen was just around the corner. And the reason he was running because he was so close and he was about to get in. Now I had to go and I sprinted. I managed to get there just in time, just before he was about to drive off and close the door. And I got him. He put up a bit more of a fight this time. He kicked and he struggled, but he was a smaller guy. So I managed to get him out of the car fine. And he, again, he put up a bit of a fight, but I needed to carry him out to the main road so the police could find him. But he kept falling to the floor to try and stop me. <laughs> so I ended up having to pick him up and just carry him out to the main road. And it was there at the side of the road. I was holding this car thief, waiting for the police to come and take him. And so they eventually turned up a few minutes later. They took over. And my action adventure was done for the day. Now, although he was probably the easiest criminal to catch in the world, I mean, he was truly terrible at what he was doing. I did, in fact, actually manage to stop a criminal. I got a guy who definitely would have gotten away with a car. I managed to get the car back and the valuables for my neighbours. And that criminal ended up serving some jail time. So although it wasn't quite as action-packed as the movies I loved, I did feel I managed to save the day. And I did it all before 6am on a Sunday morning. Do you Did, know what happened to the guy? Uh, yeah, he got. I think he got about two years because he had oh, done wow. it before. He was a young. I think he was like in his twenty, like <laughs> early twenties. But he had done it a couple of times before, and um, he wasn't very good at it. No, no, he was terrible at it. <laughs> and he should have been in better shape if he was so young. <laughs> yeah, he was a I skinny was guy as well. I, when people when I tell people, they think he's going to be like this fat older person. But that's he how was, I envisioned him. Yeah, yeah, he was a skinny guy. He should have been fine. But the police said they they had this guy a couple of times before, and he was like they said he was terrible. <laughs> what is, he just one of the terrible criminals that you don't really have to worry about. What's great about that that kind of story is that you wouldn't hear that in a traditional public speaking class, and you you hear Alfie's authentic voice. Versus when I teach theater or or other public speaking classes, they sort of hide behind what they're talking about, whether it's a character or whether that it's they're presenting all these these facts and these numbers. They sort of detach themselves from it. Here, you have to completely let your defenses down and and reveal who you are to an audience. Travis, why do you think people do that? Why do you think they, they prefer in some places to sort of have that wall up when they're talking? It's easier. And, it's easier. and you can probably ask any of these guys. It's much harder being vulnerable in front of an audience. And then I make them go stand on a stage in a comedy <laughs> club and tell their stories. So really throughout the semester, I raise the expectations and I stretch them outside of their comfort zone and figure out what will challenge them even more. 
This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with members of the Storytelling Project. It's where Fordham's graduate business students hone their skills in class, then get on stage in front of a live audience to tell real, uncensored stories. No script, no notes. Joining me is Jonathan Shanker, Chris Watts, Alfie Warren, and Fordham professor Travis Russ, who leads the Storytelling Project. Well, I'm ready to hear another story. Who's going to share next? Jonathan, are you up? Jonathan? I believe it was me. Okay. Okay. And yours was called Illegal Illegal Matinee. Yeah. I was among the last generation of kids to remember a world pre-smartphone, pre-Google. Making choices was just different back then. It wasn't based on having all the information. It was based on instinct, on a feeling that you just had in your gut when you knew you were doing what you were meant to do. As a child, I wanted to be so many things, and like most kids, I was impressionable. When I was four, my parents got me one of those toy doctor's kits. I'd found my true calling. <laughs> a doctor, I'd surely be. That was until I got a Ghostbusters proton pack. <laughs> then I really found my true calling. I was going to be a Ghostbuster, naturally. Then, when I was nine, I rethought my professional destiny once again. The only difference was, this time, it stuck. My grandmother, Aileen Hockman, of blessed memory, a strong, single, well-traveled Brooklynite turned Floridian, was, among many things, a film buff, to say the least. As far back as I can remember, Grandma was always taking me to the movies. To say that these outings were a favorite pastime of mine would be a severe understatement. In fact, when I think back on some of my formative years, I should probably first think of playing basketball or going to the mall with friends, a 90s staple. But to be honest, what I remember most is just going to the movies with Grandma. You see, Grandma was no ordinary movie partner, and going to the movies with Grandma was an all-day event because you wouldn't just see one, but you'd see two movies. Grandma was a firm believer that you should get your money's worth. Uh, She used to always tell me, when I was your age, I'd see two movies for 10 cents. So naturally, seeing a doubleheader was the only option. Uh, She taught me the necessary skill of hanging back in the bathroom or waiting in the popcorn line until it was time to sneak into the second movie of the day. And she'd always pack uh, tuna sandwiches and Diet Cokes in her purse for our mid-movie snack. I guess you can say that Grandma just knew what was up. While most kids my age were watching Batman or The Sandlot, I was watching Singing in the Rain and Brigadoon. <laughs> Grandma loved the classics, so much so that I used to think that Turner Classic Movies was the only channel that she had in her apartment. <laughs> uh, one of my most vivid and life-changing memories came in 1994 when I was nine years old and Grandma took me to see Pulp Fiction. I'll, I'll say it again just one more time, just so everyone out there is hearing me correctly. Uh, I was nine years old, and my grandma took me to see Pulp Fiction. And here's how that went. Uh, we walk up to the box office. I'm standing right next to my grandma when she says, We'll have two tickets for Pulp Fiction, please. The theater attendant gave this odd and confused glance and then leaves, and then comes back with the manager, who looks right at my grandmother and then looks down at me, the roughly four-and-a-half-foot boy standing there in a Ninja Turtles t-shirt. And he says in this slow and deliberate voice, I'll never forget, he's like, Yep, uh, Pulp Fiction, that's a 
That's a hard R, ma'am. It was clear that this sale was not going to happen. But not to worry, Grandma, always the swift thinker, just buys two tickets to whatever PG-rated movie was playing that day and then snuck me into Pulp Fiction. <laughs> uh, she didn't pack all those tuna sandwiches for nothing. Uh, corny as it may sound, but that illegal matinee changed my life. I won't go into all the dorky cinematic details, but let's just say it was on another level from Gene Kelly tap dancing in the rain. <laughs> It was the best movie I had ever seen, <laughs> and in many ways, it just set my life into motion. From that moment on, my doctor's kit, my proton pack, hell, even my Nintendo, they were all just invisible relics of the past. All I cared about was movies. Great movies. NYU film school followed by production jobs and hours spent working on set and now getting an MBA in media, all to further my dream of working in the film industry. Everything that's happened in my life professionally and creatively significant was all set into motion on that fateful day when Grandma took me to see Pulp Fiction. Thanks, Grandma. I was going to ask if you thought if you had to thank your grandma. You had yeah, to. Yeah, I had to. I had you to had do it. to. I had to do it. She helped change your life. Yeah. Is she still alive? No, she passed away just about a year ago, unfortunately. But was she able to see all you all you accomplished? Yeah. And you let her know that she was the one that kind of was the catalyst of that? Uh, she knew. She knew? She knew. And she knew that I've since passed down the... Uh, the seeing a doubleheader torch to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's great about that story is you can totally see his grandmother in your mind as he right. tells the story. And you can totally see them sitting there in that movie theater, that dark movie theater, eating their tuna sandwiches. <laughs> and and little Jonathan wearing his uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirt. Yeah, and the sandwiches were always wrapped in like the noisiest possible <laughs> thing. It was just like... So what did and you... I don't think Grandma ever realized that it was us making the noise. Oh, she didn't care. She, she sounded she'd be like, like, did you she hear that care. woman next to you? She was so loud. I like never told her that it was Grandma, me. Grandma, that was us. <laughs> that was me unwrapping the hard candies that she pulled out of her pocket. So, Chris? Let's do it. <laughs> you ready? Yeah, I like how we went from, from crime stopping to committing crimes, though, by the way. I was trying to point that out. Oh, that a, good connection. There is a theme. There yeah. is a theme. I like so just that being Mixed messages. Now, this is me. Yeah. Oh, this is not a crime, but it's a, it's a little white lie. It is. Okay, and this one's called Bananas? Correct, Bananas. All right. Okay. So it was new hire orientation, and we were out in Los Angeles for a week. And uh, we broke out into teams, and on the first day, we were going around the room, and we were introducing ourselves and saying one thing that was not on our LinkedIn profile. And it was sort of a way for everybody to get to know each other more on a personal level. And one by one, people started rattling off these interesting notes about themselves. And I, and I started to realize, wow, these people are really interesting. I mean, we had skydiving instructors. We had people who tried out for Olympic teams. One guy was born with 12 toes. <laughs> it, was like, it was all very interesting stuff. And I realized I'm, I'm an incredibly boring guy. I have nothing to bring to the table here. So when time came for me to, to stand up and give my bit, um, I stretched the truth a little bit. And I said, hi, everybody, I'm Chris Watts. One thing that's not on my LinkedIn profile is that I'm an aspiring world record breaker. 
And I say I stretched the truth because I, I did actually try and break one record. Uh, I tried to break the record for most eggs cracked over your forehead <laughs> oh. in under a minute. Um, the record is 162. Uh, I got six. <laughs> but regardless, I counted it as an attempt. And uh, I said, thank you. And I, and I sat down and my uh, my new colleagues were, were not really satisfied with that. I said, well, what other records did you try and break? And I realized, oh my gosh, okay. I said I was an, award, an aspiring world record breaker. I guess I have to have tried to break more than one record. Uh, so from there, I just flat out lied. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, I also tried to uh, snap the most bananas in a minute. And I don't know why there's like a correlation between food and, and under a minute, but um, for some reason, my colleagues really latched on to this fact. And so they started asking more and more questions. Oh, my gosh. Uh, how many bananas did you snap? What kind did you use? Et cetera. And I just kept digging myself deeper and deeper into a hole. I'm like, oh, Chiquita Banana is definitely the best brand to use. I snapped 52. It's really easy. It's really easy. Yeah, on and on and on. And finally, I sat down and I thought to myself, okay, I, I wasn't boring. Uh, but perhaps I was a little too interesting because they were really into that lie that I told. Didn't think much of it, though, uh, until later that night. We were all out at a bar, and uh, it got brought up again. And, and somebody said, hey, how about Chris snapping all those bananas? That's pretty cool. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, great. I got to talk more about this. And they just kept asking questions. And one guy in particular started noticing some holes in my story, <laughs> or some inconsistencies. And so he called me out on it. He said, did you even really try and break this record? And, uh, you know, in hindsight, I probably should have just said, no, I didn't. Of course, I'm boring. So I made something up because all you guys are so cool. Uh, but I didn't do that. I, I vehemently denied the fact that I would make something like this up. I said, who, who would make something like that up? Be crazy. <laughs> and we went back and forth a little bit, and it was in front of everybody else in the group. So they all sort of witnessed it. It was a little bit of a, of a disagreement, but no big deal. Went to bed that night. He and I were just going to agree to disagree on my lie. And uh, didn't think anything of it until the next morning. I woke up, cold sweat, 5.45 in the morning, and I realized I need to go to breakfast today with all the people that I had told this little white lie to. And there will most likely be bananas there. <laughs> and they're probably going to ask me to demonstrate how to break them. And I've never attempted this in my life. Like, secret will be out. I am the pathological liar that this company just hired. So, 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm sprinting out of this hotel, downtown L.A., running through the streets, looking for an open convenience store. And I finally find one. I bust in. I'm sweating. I'm nervous. Guy can tell, like, there's a look of desperation in my face. And I say, please tell me you have bananas. And the cashier <laughs> says, uh, yeah, yeah, we do. I said, all right, I'll take two bananas. Please tell me you have a bathroom. And again, <laughs> the guy looked at me and he's like, uh, yeah, right back there. Pointed to the back of the store. I take my bananas. I go into the bathroom. And this was it. I mean, this was the moment of truth. Like, could I snap this banana? <laughs> Essentially, my professional reputation was on the line, and it all came down to whether or not I could break this piece of fruit in half. <laughs> and so I'm standing there, and I snap the first one. Clean break. I'm feeling good. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Take the second one. Just for good measure, make sure I can do it. Same thing perfect break i'm thinking hey this is fine i'm gonna look like a hero and i walk out of that store i looked at the convenient or the the clerk and i kind of like shot him a wink and pointed at him and walked out of there and 
I'm thinking back, and I can't imagine what this clerk was thinking. Like, I come into the store sweaty, nervous, like really desperate. I get two bananas, spend a minute in the bathroom, emerge empty-handed, but on top of the world. Regardless, I probably should have told them what was going on, but I like pretty much skipping back to that hotel, and I walked into the ballroom where they were serving breakfast. Bingo, bananas on the table. I'm set. This is it. And I sit down at the table just ready for vindication. And sure enough, my detractor's there. And I say to him and everybody else, hey, so you guys want to see me break some bananas or what? And they all looked back at me. And finally, the detractor spoke up and said, no, nah, man, don't waste the food. No one really cares about that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no one really cares. <laughs> Uh, so, Chris, uh, I, I see your business of choice. You're going to be a used car salesman. Uh, can I ask what was, for each of you, the most challenging part about taking the storytelling project course? I think it was a little more difficult for me um, to kind of work my stories within the framework of, of what the guidelines were. Uh, but I think that's part of it, and that's part of the challenge because – you know, in business and outside of business too, like if you're trying to relate to somebody, you have a set amount of stories that, that you've told or maybe that, that are familiar to you and you have to tell that story and relate it back to what they're going through, right? So it's, it's, it's sort of along the same lines. Like I was, I had to tell a story about something that I wasn't comfortable telling in front of people. There it was, I told a secret and I sort of related that back to the theme. And I think with, with stories, the big thing is you want to get across some sort of message or sort of moral or something and if you're just talking about anything you could end up with stories that have no message or no mm -hmm. more they're just kind of entertaining or something like that and especially if you're putting it in a business sense you want your story to connect to something you're trying to sell or something you're trying to get across and having a guideline i think gives you more practice towards that sort of situation travis are we going to have this class next semester um, that's my hope, and I'm, my, my hope is to reach out to other populations, not just within the business school, um, perhaps to the Bronx community. I would love to do an outreach effort where we go into Bronx schools and teach uh, young people how to tell their stories. Tell me a story, tell me a story, tell me a story, remember what you said. I would like to thank my guests, Travis, Chris, Jonathan, Nalfi. I'd also like to thank my producer, Blake Christie. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Tell me a story, tell me a story, tell me a story, remember what you said. You promised me, you said you would, you gotta